Hey everybody, this is Jeannie Faulkner, and you're listening to Common Sense, Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics. We are taking the month of August off from producing new episodes, and instead, we're reaching back into the archives to showcase a few episodes you might have missed, but that I really want you to hear. Enjoy a month of Common Sense, Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics classics, and we'll be back in September with new guests, new conversations, and even a few surprises. Um, Listen to our July 28th episode. I think that's episode 139 to find out what's going on with me. And don't hesitate to send me your questions at gene at genefogner.com. Also, go find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Enjoy the rest of your summer, and I'll see you folks next month. Bye-bye. Everybody, this is Jeannie Faulkner, and you are listening to Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting, the podcast. I'm the author of Common Sense Pregnancy, the book, which you can find on Amazon.com, Barnes and Nobles, Target.com, and of course, at your local booksellers. I've had the particularly fun experience of finding my book on sale at my favorite grocery store, New Seasons Markets, which is right here in Portland, Oregon. They have this really excellent combination of groceries and gifts and books and freshly prepared foods and candy and magazines and everything you really need in life. And it's all really healthy and mostly, you know, organic, natural stuff. I say mostly because, you know, you can definitely find your Cheerios and your favorite tampon brand there too. The people who work there are really nice. Everyone's pretty happy when they're shopping. And what do you know, one day, shortly after my book launched, I was in a store, a New Seasons Market, and I found it on the shelves. Yes, I took a selfie and did a little happy dance. It was so much fun. Thanks, New Seasons, for making me happy. So last week, we talked about Hurricane Harvey, and I want to thank you all who donated at Circle of Health International and at EveryMotherCounts.org, and for those of you who shared the podcast so others would help too. This week, there are wildfires burning all over my state of Oregon. And in fact, there's a huge one, the Eagle Creek Fire, which is only about 20 miles away. There's so much smoke in the air that we all smell like campfires and there's ash falling from the sky like snow. The light is this strange gray amber hue and the sun is pinkish red and it's kind of gorgeous, but it's also really frightening. And then there's Hurricane, Hurricane Irma barreling down on Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic and the Virgin Islands and, you know, the southern coastal states, including Florida. And right after that, there's Hurricane Juan. Kind of makes you want to tip the map so that the floods down south can put out the fires in the west, if that was possible. There were hurricanes, floods, fires, and natural disasters all over the world last week. And during this one, and at each one, people stepped up and helped in dramatic, life-changing, life-saving ways. And last week, we talked a lot about the heroes and sheroes who are doing amazing things during times of crises and about, you know, how all of us have that capacity to do the same. All of us. You know, maybe we're not in a position to provide hands-on relief during a natural disaster, but, you know, we could fundraise for those who can. And, you know, maybe we can't donate large sums of money. That's okay. Give five bucks. 
Give it again next week if you've got it. Really, it adds up to important money. And like I said last week, that's what first responders and organizations who know how to provide rescue and relief in the days that follow a disaster, that's what they really need, money. Um, let's see. Well, you know, it's no mystery. Humanitarian relief and gender equity issues are kind of my thing. So a few weeks back, I was scrolling and I came upon a tweet by an obstetric anesthesiologist who was using the hashtag maternal justice. Um, now, an anesthesiologist is, he, that's one of the um, healthcare providers who provide pain relief during surgeries. And in the maternity department, they give patients epidurals. And I'm sure there are plenty of them out there, but not that many anesthesiologists that I'm aware of are tweeting on a consistent basis about you know, maternal justice issues like, you know, incarceration in pregnant women, maternal mortality rates in the U.S. and around the world, rescue efforts for Hurricane Harvey, specifically for pregnant women. Dr. James Lozada does, though. So, of course, I invited him on the pod. Hello. Hi, Dr. Lozada. It's Jeannie. Hi, how are you? I am doing really well. Um, you are in Chicago, is that right? I am. That's uh, where I'm working right now, and um, kind of that's how we met. I think we uh, came, uh, interacted with each other on a twi- Twitter chat, and and that's how we're here today. Um, you know what? I think that I wasn't on that chat. I think I just happened upon you because you were using the hashtag Maternal Justice. Oh, okay. and I wanted. Yeah, and I want to talk about that in just a minute, but let me start off this way. Let me just read a little bit of your bio, and then let me ask you a couple questions. Cool? Sure, yeah. Okay. Dr. Lozada is a physician journalist, an obstetric anesthesiologist, a television reporter, a voiceover artist, an obstetric anesthesiology fellow at Northwestern University. So the first question then is, who are you and what do you do? Yeah, that's uh, there's a lot to unpack there, right? Um, yeah, there is. So I consider myself now a physician journalist, and I think at heart uh, I am a journalist. But uh, now I am, by training, also a physician, and I ended up going a route in medicine uh, that allows me to. Uh, take care of of women and and babies when they're born and you know my overall goal is to be able to use uh, my skill set in both areas hopefully to uh, improve health and um, increase awareness about uh, the issues that are surrounding um, labor and delivery and maternal mortality and those types of things so uh, I think my background in, in journalism sort of helps me do that and so I I kind of combine all of it. Are you also a parent? I am. Yeah, I have uh, three boys, actually. Ooh, three yeah. boys. Yeah. I'm surprised you didn't lead with that. That seems like <laughs> a lot. <laughs> it is, yeah. 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 So medicine is a second career for you. Is that right? It is, yeah. So I I initially went to college and, and got a degree in broadcast journalism and then worked as a TV reporter for six years and started 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 off in a small market and gradually worked my way up into some larger markets and, and ended up uh, my career in Las Vegas. 
And it was at that point where, you know, I, I had, had done it for a while. I had had occasion to cover some pretty big stories and meet some interesting people. But ultimately, I wasn't really fulfilled or happy with what I was doing. And, mm-hmm. you know, occasionally I would be in the hospital covering medical stories. And I always felt a pull to that, felt like maybe that's where I should be. And, you know, at the time I was I was still pretty young. I, was, I think I was 27 or something. And I just thought, well, you know, I'm still young, so I'm going to take the plunge and, and go this other route. So that's what I did. And you got a doctorate osteopathy degree, correct? Right. Yeah, I went to... Yeah, uh, a, a lot of people don't realize that the doctors that they're working with in the traditional medical system are DOs instead of MDs. Same degree, same everything, just a little bit of a different educational pathway. Is that correct? Exactly, yeah. The, the only yeah. real difference is in medical school, the first two years of medical school, there's a little bit uh, different uh, training in some areas in terms of how we uh, focus on the, the body and some different um, manipulation mm-hmm. techniques. Um, and that's really the only difference. After that, you go to the same clinical training, the same residency training, uh, and can do any of the same specialties. Yeah. Surgery, diagnostic, everything. It's all exactly the same. Exactly. It's just a, a lot of people don't know that. Right. And I always like to correct that little, that little myth. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So... We connected um, because I'm, you know, I'm always looking for you know, people that are interested in the birth industry or maternal health care or maternal justice is kind of a subspecialty interest of mine. And I saw that you posted that. So why is maternal justice your thing? Well, I think, uh, you know, really my thing is um, women and uh, making sure that they have a good experience during labor and delivery and making sure that we do everything we can as a society um, to provide them access to health care and affordable access and um, try to kind of get rid of some of these disparities that lead to the differences we see in morbidity and mortality. So. You know, I think that's kind of where I'm coming from. I just, um, you know, I, I just really want the best possible outcomes for women. Was there a motivating incident that started you on this path? Was it just something that you've always felt? I've actually given that quite a bit of thought uh, recently. Um, mm-hmm. You know, as I've, I, I recently moved to Chicago and I now work at a women's hospital. And so you know, I'm very immersed in, in this now. And mm-hmm. I was just really wondering, you know, what led me here? And, and I think I have, I identify that. Um, so when I was born, my parents were divorced very young. I was a month old and um, my mother, and, and I've spoken with her about this and told her that I probably would be sharing this story. So she understands that. Um, mm-hmm. But she had severe postpartum psychosis mm. uh, to the point where she actually had to be uh, put in a hospital for uh, an extended period of time because she mm-hmm. was a harm to herself, to, to me and to her family. Mm-hmm. And uh, for the first six months of my life, I was raised by my grandparents. 
So that led to, you know, a very close relationship with my grandparents. Um, but I think that the separation um, created a different type of relationship with my mother. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been times, uh, you know, that I, th- I feel like we're more friends than, than that mother-son kind of bonding. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't know that I attribute it all to that, but I think it played a big part. Um, yeah. And I think that uh, it just sort of led me to um, try to, what I think about a lot is, you know, a lot of the, the deaths we deal with in mothers are preventable. And I just don't want uh, another child, if possible, on my watch at least, to, to be mm-hmm. without their mother. And I think that's kind right. of what it's led me here. Yeah. Oh, my heart goes out to your mom, too, you know. We know more now than we did then, and yet still so many mothers suffer with postpartum depression, postpartum psychosis, you know, just so much there. Yeah, Yeah, it's, you know, as I learn more about it, too, it's just, uh, it sort of opens my eyes more into, you know, not only the immediate impacts, but the, you know, what kind of impacts it can have really on on the lifetime of both the mother and the children and just listening to her talk about the way it impacted her entire life um, is, is really eye-opening. Yeah, I bet. Well, you know, maternal justice is a pretty wide and multifaceted topic. And there are, you know, literal justice issues where mothers are shackled in labor or arrested for seeking help for substance abuse during pregnancy or, you know, things like that. But then there are more general topics like the pay gap, gaps in access to health care, which you mentioned, domestic violence, maternity leave, lack of access to reproductive health care, you know, all of those things. Is there one particular avenue that resonates with you the most? I think most, uh, the thing that kind of sticks out to me the most is basically access to health care. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Because I think, you know, when we look at the maternal mortality rates in, in the country, we see a very large disparity between like African Americans and white women. And I, mm-hmm. I think a lot of that has to do with, with the access to health care, the ability to have good prenatal care. Um, and, you know, I think that's the big issue that sticks out to me. Now, yeah. I also had a very um, good experience as uh, and, and training as an anesthesiologist uh, in Texas, and that where I trained, we were the sole provider of healthcare for women in the state who were imprisoned. Imprisoned. Um, so you know, I was able. To, you were like every all the healthcare that they needed, whether it was the flu or a pregnancy or an epidural. Exactly. If, if any woman who was in prison in the state of Texas needed to be in the hospital, they came to our facility for, wow. for any reason, not just, you know, pregnancy, but for any health care mm-hmm. needs. So, mm-hmm. you know, it, it allowed me to have a different perspective than most people will get um, and seeing the women who are in prison needing that medical care, who are pregnant, um, going through the labor and delivery process. And so that's something that, you know, I, I have insight to and care about also. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what do you think the role of men and boys are in maternal justice? And I know that's a really broad question, but, you know, I'm speaking to you as a dude in the business here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, uh, man, that's, yeah. I, I think that basically, I think a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, like, gaps between yeah. men and women. And mm-hmm. I think one of the biggest things we can do is to try to close those gaps. Um, and, well, you know, whether that's pay or the way we work or the expectations, um, I think we have to be really active and trying to stop that. Um, because mm-hmm. I, I really think like when I look at, you know, let's just other women in my profession, you know, female doctors, I really think it's just unbelievable the amount of uh, expectations they have on them, both as like a physician, a mother, um, everything they have to do. Um, and they don't get paid the same amount. It's right. I, I just don't, I really don't agree with that. And I mean, it's just not, there's no excuse for it. And I think that as a society and especially men, we should really just stand up and say, it's not right. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I think that, you know, men that are aware of the issue and wanting to do something about it need to make a loud, a loud noise because, you know, no matter what the topic is, in general, guys are going to get heard loudest and first. It's the way it is right now. Yeah. You know, and I think also, you know, on a more personal level, you know, we have to just really be supportive of, of partners and women in our personal lives, um, you know, and take some, take some of that work off them. Don't, uh, don't maintain those crazy expectations, you know, um, it's just not reasonable for someone to work full time and then come home and and be expected to do all the same stuff. So, yeah, it seems like with a lot of um, younger parents nowadays, you're seeing a more equitable division in the household of labor and resources. Yeah, you know, both both parents are bringing resources to the family, and they're both providing. You know, the services that all the stuff you got to do, the laundry, the groceries, the, you know, stay home for the plumber, all that stuff. I think that there's still a long way to go, but I think it's really encouraging that it's, you know, this generation of brand new parents is looking at a little bit more differently. And you're the dad of three boys. So (laughs) how do you discuss that with them? So they are 12, 7, and 3. Oh, yeah. well, your 12-year-old. Right, yeah. So, yeah, the 12-year-old's getting to the point where, you know, we've just just begun to start having some of these, you know, serious talks. Um, mm-hmm. I think the, the best thing you can do is you just have to lead by example. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I think so, too. You know, if your kids see the way you, you live your life, the way you treat people, I think that's most likely the way they're going to follow and all, you always want to talk to them. Um, I think so. I'm the only person in you know in my family to go to college, and you know I really probably um, I, it's probably a miracle I ended up you know here like I am. But I mm-hmm. I attribute a lot of that to my grandfather, who was uh, very instrumental in my life. Uh, I was with him every weekend, and he led by example and he sat me down and lectured me every weekend about the way you should live life so i think it's really Mm. important 
I bet you hated that back then. Um, <laughs> the lecturing? Or, or did you like it? I, th- I think I liked it. I mean, oh. you know, they could get a little long sometimes. But, you know, I think mm-hmm. I, I understood his point, And it, it was something I was not getting anywhere else. Yeah. Yeah. It was important to him that you hear the real lessons right. that he needed to teach you. Yeah. That's special. Yeah. Well, as an anesthesiologist, you're about one of the most influential people on a labor unit. And you often meet with your patients either during a time of crisis or, you know, when they're in great big freaking pain. (laughs) How do you make the connection? I think by being genuine, uh, Mm -hmm. by just trying to take the level of anxiety (laughs) down, you know, coming coming in the room, um, trying to just be calm and working with them. I think, you know, sometimes, um, and what I try to teach the, the residents and medical students I work with is that really, you know, this is the woman's experience and what she wants we should work with and work around. And, um, for example, I had a recent um, experience where, you know, it's a, a young man who's just beginning to learn OB anesthesia. And the the woman uh, was, was in labor, um, having pretty frequent contractions. And she asked us to, to give her a second while she had a contraction. And that's something we definitely should do. You know, let her mm-hmm. get through a contraction, mm-hmm. then we'll get started. Um, mm-hmm. but he didn't really understand that yet. And he was about to start, you know, the procedure. So, you know, I just, I had to tell him, you know, no, don't, you know, just let her, let her get through this. And then, then we can start Cause you know, you're going to lose maybe 30 seconds or something, but right. it's better, uh, just to let her, you know, get through that and, and have a better overall experience and perception of, of the process. Yeah, I agree. You know, um, epidurals, it's a big part of your job. Let's talk about them. I would venture to guess that if my listener is listening to this pod in the United States or Europe, um, they know what an epidural is. Mm -hmm. But if they're in a developing country, and many of my listeners may be, they may not know. So can you describe it just super, super fast and simple? Yeah. And then let's let's do a little bit of myth busting. Okay, sure. So basically... An epidural it allows us to give medicine into a part of the spinal column that goes around in your back. Um, it's called the epidural space. So the medicine just surrounds that area and it numbs up a portion of the nerves, uh, usually from about the stomach area down. And it allows you to basically deliver a baby uh, vaginally without significant pain. So it takes usually takes away all the sharp pain. You may feel still feel pressure. And then we can use it if needed to also uh, do a C-section. That was really good. Excellent. Nice and concise. <laughs> <laughs> Almost as if you've done that before, right, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there are a lot of concerns among member, some members of the birth community that epidurals are overused or might be contributing to rising, you know, labor augmentation rates and rising C-section rates. Mm-hmm. And I know that, you know, the stu- studies are mixed. Right. Um, I wonder what your, what's your opinion? 
So um, I'll I'll just give you the the literature. Um, okay. So so first first of all, I think that it's really a personal choice uh, how a woman decides to go through through labor, and mm-hmm. you know if. Uh, you want an epidural, it's certainly something we can do. And if you don't want one, that's perfectly fine. Um, mm-hmm. So one of the questions is, what do epidurals do to the C-section rates? So there have been good mm-hmm. studies on that, and it does not increase C-section rates. So the other question is, does it prolong labor? Um, mm-hmm. So in the there are a couple different stages of labor. Um, in the first stage of labor, uh, the studies show that there were kind of variable results, but overall there was really no clinical significant difference in the, the timing. In the mm-hmm. second stage of labor, epidurals were shown to increase the length of labor by about 15 minutes. So over the course of a long labor, 15 minutes is a relatively small amount of time. Um, and then the last question that has been looked at uh, pretty well is do epidurals increase the instrumental vaginal delivery rate, which that means uh, vacuum-assisted or forceps mm-hmm. delivery. Right. And right. what those studies show is that if you use a high concentration of medicine or a, basically a heavy dose that you can increase that rate so the risk is higher so typically uh, what most ob anesthesiologists will use now is is a low concentration of medicine where you don't get legs that you just can't move at all you can basically Mm -hmm. still move your legs but you still take away the pain and that does not increase that that instrumental delivery rate so other myths, <clears throat> excuse me, and I know that you've heard these, um, especially with some of our um, patients who are coming from other countries, um, and a lot of women in immigrant populations come in with concerns that if you get an epidural, it's going to mess up your back, or that if you get an epidural, you know, I heard of somebody who was paralyzed, and you know, I've been bedside for thousands of epidurals, as have you, no doubt, and I have not seen that happen. So I would like you to officially help me with that one. Right. Um, so, you know, we before you, anyone gets an epidural, we go through the, the risk of complications and, and side effects and all that sort of thing. Paralysis is not one of them. There has never been a case report of paralysis with an epidural. Uh, one of the things I know, but don't you wonder, I mean, I just, I hear this, like women are coming from, you know, somewhere in South America where healthcare access is really, really minimal. And they describe this epidural process. And I've got to wonder, you got to be kidding me. That that wasn't an epidural. That wasn't an epidural. That was something else that was happening to you. So yeah, one of the big, uh, one of the big things to realize is where we actually put the epidural is below the level of your spinal cord. So uh, it's really basically impossible where we're putting the epidural in to injure any of those nerves that are critical to your function. They're there, yeah. um, but the, you know there, there's just never been an incident where someone has been paralyzed because of this. 
Right. Right. And that's why we go. That's that's why we go where we do because we want to avoid the spinal cord. Yeah. Yeah. Another, um, you know, uh, kind of a myth that um, some parents still have is that getting an epidural is a really fast, simple procedure, sort of like, you know, getting your blood drawn or getting a shot. And, uh, you know, part of the build up to getting the epidural is letting parents know that, nope, it's a pretty systematic step-by-step thing that could take a while, like an hour or so. Right. So a lot of that depends on the individual patient, the experience level of the person doing the epidural. But I would say in general, for someone who's experienced the whole process from the time you walk into the room until the time you leave, it's probably going to be somewhere between 20 and 30 minutes. Um, mm-hmm. That can vary, um, you know, based on a lot of different factors. The actual portion where you're actually doing the procedure, you know, may take between five and 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, but it really just depends on, on the situation, the, the individual patient, are there you know, have, have they had surgery in their back? Is there scoliosis or a curvature of the back that may uh, pre- present difficulties? So there are a lot of things like that to consider. Mm-hmm. There are. And it's a, it's a meticulous process that, you know, generally works really, really well. Yeah. I will say that, you know, I, I'm, I'm uh, really grateful to be surrounded by some of the best OB anesthesiologist in the world where I'm working right now. And, you know, we all want to deliver pain relief to laboring women as fast as possible. And, mm-hmm. and that, you know, that's our goal is, is really to be really efficient um, and perfect our craft where, where we can do it very quickly, you know, as painlessly as possible and as quick as possible. And that's why you guys are so popular. <laughs> <laughs> every patient's very best friend. Yeah. yeah. I, so uh, let's, yeah, go ahead. Well, the other thing I, I wanted to say is, you know, OB anesthesiology as a profession is, is has really changed. You know, 20 years ago, a lot of it was focused solely on putting epidurals in, doing uh, C-sections, but... Uh, over the last probably 10 years, it's changed a lot where OB anesthesiologists now are really true consultants who are focused more broadly on maternal safety, uh, maternal mortality, and a lot of the conditions that surround pregnancy and childbirth. Uh, so it's really a, a much broader emphasis that, that we focus on now. So when you say that they're consulting on these issues and how, how does that work would it how does that work in terms of of actual strategic so what do you mean yeah so it could be um it could go from the ob uh contacts us you know a few months in advance and says hey i have a high risk patient in my clinic who's set to deliver in a few months and we will just uh, see that patient in clinic uh, go over all of their medical history and formulate an in-depth, comprehensive plan for a safe delivery. That's one way. Um, mm-hmm. OB anesthesiologists are involved in many of the state and national uh, safety 
projects uh, like the hemorrhage bundles and a lot of these protocols, uh, getting these protocols in place uh, to, to make mothers safer. Um, there are anesthesiologists involved on the maternal mortality review committees at the state levels, although I would like to see more of them involved. There are some involved. Um, so there are many ways that, that OB anesthesiologists are helping to lead these efforts for maternal safety. Okay, I get it. Yeah. What else do you want listeners to know about your work as a as an anesthesiologist before we switch gears and talk about your work as a journalist? <laughs> Um, I, well, I would like, I think a lot of people don't really know much about anesthesiologists. Some, some people or many people, uh, research shows don't even realize that anesthesiologists are doctors. Uh, so I would start with that, say, you know, that. Yeah. A lot of the units I've worked on, they're, um, certified registered nurse anesthetists, yeah. you know, yeah. and then there's an, an anesthesiologist who is sort of you know, around as supervision for everybody, right. but yeah. So that's the first thing I would say, that, that anesthesiologists are doctors who've gone to medical school and, and done, you know, four or five years of additional training to become experts in the field, and uh, that we really care about our patients, and that as a field, anesthesiology has really been leaders in patient safety, and that's what we continue to focus on. Do you think that anesthetists and anesthesiologists should have a bigger role to play um, with, you know, patients who want to have low intervention births? I, I mean, I really think that that is a patient decision. Um, so are you talking about like birth centers? No, I'm talking about, you know, it, it often seems in traditional hospital births that you've got two camps. You've got your natural birth camp and you've got your um, I want an epidural as soon as I walk in the door camp. Mm -hmm. And and actually, most patients, you know, they may start out in one camp and they merge to another or, right. you know, there's there's a lot of fluidity between them. Right. But the anesthetist is only in the room during one of those episodes. And I just, I don't know, it's just something that I've thought about is what impact would it possibly make on the climate of care, you know, success rates in low intervention births, all of that stuff, if there was more of a role for the anesthesiology department to play? Right. So yeah. one thing we do, and I think is a good practice, is every patient that comes to the floor, we see. Uh, mm -hmm. So... We we see that patient, we talk to them, we discuss, you know, what options there are, and we make sure we know their medical history. Um, because, you know, the truth is any patient on that floor, the baby uh, can acutely get in a very bad situation and need to be emergently delivered. And so we want to know about all patients. Um you know, ultimately, like, like is my view, I think it's it's ultimately the mother and the family's choice. I do think that in general, anesthesiology needs to have, an anesthesiologist need to have more um, interaction with their patients. And I'm actually uh, thinking about ways we can do that using media. Um, so, mm -hmm. for instance, I would think, like, say we knew we had 10 inductions coming 
today. Uh, why couldn't we send them a text message video just introducing me as the anesthesiologist, uh, maybe 30 seconds or a minute video saying, hey, I'm your anesthesiologist. I'm looking forward to seeing you tomorrow, something like that. Just a quick little introduction. Mm -hmm. I think that would mm -hmm. make patients feel better and just kind of welcome them. That kind of, you know, innovative use of technology is really popular in developing countries. And in Africa, they're leapfrogging us in their use of mobile <laughs> yeah, phone technology right. for healthcare. Yeah. It's pretty it's pretty motivating. And, you know, I got to wonder why we don't do a little bit more of that here. Yeah. But you know what? Yeah. Well, let's talk about your work as as a journalist. Um, we're in really interesting times in in the field of journalism and health reporting and reporting in general. What do you think the responsibility of a journalist is in reporting health? I think uh, <clears throat> journalists have a difficult job in general, and I think even more so when you're reporting health because. It's a difficult topic. I, I mean, you know, I didn't I didn't realize until I went to medical school how much I didn't really understand or or know when I was trying to report health. And mm -hmm. the thing is, as a journalist, the stress is unbelievable. I it's way more stress on a daily basis than I've ever experienced in medicine. And it's, it's just because the almighty deadline. Exactly. Yeah. The deadline pressure <laughs> yeah, is crazy. Yeah. And you just have to try to, you know, grasp as much as you can about the topic before you report it. So I think right. I think the the what the the responsibility is to try to identify important subjects, but uh, to report, you know, accurately um, without being sensational about those topics. That's the trick, isn't it? It's the sensationalism. Yeah. And, you know, so often health stories are written and reported um, in ways that are, well, not technically misleading, but they're alarmist and perhaps right. unnecessarily so. And, and I think that especially in terms of women's health, we've seen that kind of sensationalism even shut down certain practices, you know, for instance, you know, there there were studies that came out in the 90s that essentially the way that they reported kind of shut down the VBAC option in most hospitals for many years. Yeah. And then turned out, oops, that one wasn't quite accurate, was it? Yeah. yeah. One of the things to, to, to realize is that the reporter is not the headline writer. So... They'll typically write the story or they'll deliver the story on TV. Somebody else uh -huh. writes the headline, which is usually right. the worst part of the story or, <laughs> or the tease on TV. Um, uh -huh. That said, that doesn't mean the story is always accurate either. And when I, when I see something that I think could be better or is, or is just not quite right, I always contact the writer, the reporter. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I just think that, you know, a lot of times they, they may not realize, you know, or they, I think they, they genuinely want to do a good job. Yeah, I, I, I don't think reporters are out there, you know, trying to report bad stories. Oh, I don't either. I really do think that they're doing 
you know, essentially a good job. And it's sort of the culture of our media that you want to go for the most extreme, you know, click catching um, headlines and, and reportage that you can. But it's also the responsibility of patients, I think, to be a little skeptical about what they're reading. And, you know, if they hear this and that procedure, you know, if you use this medication or you have this health risk, then you are at twice the risk of the other person. But then, you know, you dig down into the data a little bit and you realize, oh, well, you know, you've gone from like a 99.9% chance that you won't have this to a 99.8% chance. You know what yeah, I mean? It's yeah. like. And, and I think that's one of the challenges, you know, we have as like, like you uh, or anyone who is, is reaching patients is that, you know, as a reporter or journalist, we're taught basically to. Uh, write and talk on the sixth grade writing level. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I think it's important that we not talk over people um, and we kind of, we try to reach everyone, you know? Yeah. Um, and that's hard yeah. sometimes, you know? Yeah. For a lot of people, that's going to be their only access to healthcare information, you know, right. what they see on TV. And I think that that's pretty, it's, it's important that you don't over- you don't speak over someone's comprehension ability, but then I think that I think that these days patients have to be really active partners in their own healthcare decisions, and that means that they have to do their own research and, and homework. You know, I agree, and and we know yeah. that they are. And they're they're using yeah. the internet more than they ever have to look for healthcare and doctors and and medical topics. Um, so, yeah. and there's, there's all kinds of information out there. Uh, yeah. So. Some good, some exactly. bad, but right. yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and I think, you know, maybe, you know, sort of circling back to a maternal justice topic, I think that it's maybe more important for women than ever that they do that kind of research and homework and really have all the information that they possibly can, because, you know, the key to any kind of justice comes in information right and awareness yeah yeah well what else do you want listeners to know before we wrap up this conversation hmm. I think um, I, I would just ask listeners to kind of as you mentioned to you know research um, if this is a topic you care about, try to be active in it. There are lots of great organizations that are working on these issues. Um, you know, you want to name any, any favorites? Um, I mean, I think Moms Rising is doing an excellent job, and mm-hmm. you know, there there are lots of different groups. You know, um, mm-hmm. Every Mother Counts. Um, mm-hmm. You know, one of my favorites. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of groups, um, and you know, this is. This is a big topic and a big issue, um, and probably it hasn't. Well, it definitely has not gotten the type of um, attention that it deserves or needs. Uh, I think that you know, pro the, with with the series that ProPublica and NPR and others are working together on about maternal mortality and deaths, uh, it's hopefully you know put it shining a spotlight on on that. Uh, but I think we need to carry that that forward and just uh, just keep it up um, and keep focusing on on these these issues that we care about. Yeah, couldn't agree more. 
So I have just two more. These will be easy questions. <laughs> easy questions. All right. How would you fill in the blank? Nobody ever told me that. Hmm. Probably that it would take me this long to find myself. Ooh, that's a good answer. You're going to have to say more. <laughs> well, I mean, just like, I, I mean, I feel like I'm just now getting to the point where I'm finally like happy in my life. You know, I've, I, I've found like my passion and what I was meant to do. And along with that, you know, really being introspective and, and like figuring out why I'm doing this and you know, what's, what's driving me. I've always been introspective, but I think just now it's sort of like all coming together. And I guess, you know, uh, I'm like close to 40 now, so I guess it's about time. You found your mission? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good place to be in. You found your mission. You've got three boys. Not bad. You're doing it right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, then my last question for you is this. Where are you in your life in terms of motherhood? Hmm. In terms of motherhood, well, mm -hmm. that hmm, that that's like there's so much about that. Uh, You're surrounded, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess you know personally, uh, probably not. There's probably still s some things I need to like settle personally, um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I think I will, you know. Um, but yeah. you know, professionally, um, I feel like what I do is, is genuine and good work every day. And I go to work every day and I'm happy and I come home every day and I can look at myself in the mirror and I feel like I did something good that day. That's not something I always felt when I was a reporter and, and mm. I, and I'm, I'm happy about that. Excellent. Well then, I'm gonna I'm gonna tag on one more question. Where are you in your life as a dad? That, uh, that I mean, that's that's also involving. I mean, I think there's no you know there's no handbook on parenting. So, um, God, I wish there was. Yeah. <laughs> so I think uh, you know it's it's always uh, you're always learning, and hopefully, you know, my boys are I, they're all very smart and. I just, I hope that they grow up to be, you know, good men and, and care about women like I do. And, um, I mean, I'm going to keep showing them, you know, being a good example for them and teaching them the lessons that I learned from my grandfather. And, and I guess that's really all I can do. That's pretty good. Those are some pretty good parting words. Thank you very much for joining this conversation. I really, really enjoyed it. Thank you. I had a great time. Good. All right. Well, we'll talk again down the road. Absolutely. Mama said there'll be days like this. There'll be days like this. Mama said. Mama said. Mama said. Mama said Our guest today was Dr. James Lozada. 
He is a fellow at the Division of Obstetric Anesthesiology, Department of Anesthesiology at Northwestern University School of Medicine. He tweets at Dr. J. Lozada, L-O-Z-A-D-A. You'll find me over on Twitter at Gene Faulkner and over on my website, Gene at Gene Faulkner. You can email me, Gene at Gene Faulkner. Subscribe to download every episode and make sure you share this with your clan. Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting is produced by Alex Ward at Sounds Like Picture Studios. We'll talk again next week, everybody. Bye-bye.